Dun, dun, dun. Are we rolling? Yeah, we are. Awesome. Welcome, 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 welcome. Welcome back to the Bunch Podcast. Bunch the Podcast. Recording somewhat live in the moment from downtown Great Barrington. Back with my main man, Rafa. Rafa, how you feeling today? I'm feeling all right. Not okay. bad, not bad. You a little Pretty tired from day. last night? No, I got some sleep. Good. Plenty of sleep. Good. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited for tonight. You know, last week was certainly an interesting practicum for us. Get the ball rolling. At some point, you got to put food out, whether it's good or not. But I'm really pumped tonight that we have our first guest on the show and really excited to have you here on the show with us, Mark Firth. Mark Firth, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you very much. That's nice. That's I'll nice. be here all night. Yeah. Hopefully not. I don't want to be yeah, here all night. We all have lots We all have lots of this. Let's go ahead and progress this thing on. Uh, Rafa, where do you want to start with this thing, man? I mean, what are you um, thinking? I, I, uh, I want to start today pretty much the same way that we started last week. Um, with a, um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of us know you very well, Mark. Um, but a lot of us, including the people that are listening to this, don't. And uh, just kind of give us a little bit of a background of where you grew up, where you came from. Where are you from, man? <laughs> um, as, my, as my auntie in Yorkshire once said, Mark, you've lost your dialect. <laughs> <laughs> and then I reminded her I left England when I was two, so... Didn't that much, long ago? Yeah, I didn't have much of a dialogue. Well, f- dialect. for being that gone that long, what are you, yeah. 60 years old they now? They sent me back. They yeah, sent me back a okay. bit. Yeah. But you, you so, got yeah, a my nice My parents emigrated bit. to uh, to Zambia when I was two or three. It, you know, it was the 70s or late 60s. <laughs> Nobody has a clue. No, those Polaroids are long gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, apparently, well, we did actually take a boat from Southampton to Cape Town and then drove up. Zambia. My dad got a job with the copper mines. And uh, yeah, then we, uh, I got a really good tan for a few years, skin cancer, lots of it, which is costing me a lot of money now, actually, you know, that and the t- drinking Coca-Cola as, as your main source of liquid, <laughs> your, your hydration. <laughs> I, so, I, uh, I thought beer was cheaper than... Yeah, but the beer, they don't let you have beer till you're 12. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... But apparently in Zambia, you, if to get a driver's license, you had to be the apparent age of 14. Just apparent. Which is apparent. You know, you look 14, you get a driver's license. That's how it is in New Marlboro too, actually. Oh, yeah? yeah, just in New Marlboro. Just as long as you're driving, driving a John Deere. <laughs> you, you can do anything you want as long as you look old enough. It's its own state, right? It has a, its own government. Something like that. But you just give I a see wave. see the signs. Yeah, you give a wave to anybody and you're pretty much good to do anything out there. It's awesome. Delete that out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... We'll just bleep over that bit. So so we're there. We're... uh, Yeah, so we're in Zambia. We're having a good time. Then my parents got divorced. And so my older brother, when he was eight or nine, got sent to boarding school in Zimbabwe. And uh, so, yeah, I was an only child for a bit, which was great. (laughs) And then... uh, yeah, then my uh, my dad said, all right, Ian's going to school in England, and in two years you're going to follow him. So they sent me to Yorkshire. Long, I had long blonde hair. It was like stick thin, feet like leather. <laughs> and um, they put a, literally put a bowl on my head and gave me a bowl haircut. 
Is that where that term comes from? Yes. Wow. From a bowl. Didn't even have a crack in it. Uh, right, just a straight bowl haircut. And then they introduced me to the tuck shop. And I had about five pounds a week to spend. So I Mars bars, flakes, caramels, you name it. You like your sweets. Oh, Jesus, did I. Interesting. So the first term I got sent back. So you fly back every three months. So you month of Christmas, you're home, month at Easter, and two months in the summer. And uh, I got off the plane, and my parents literally were looking around because they didn't recognize me. Because your fat ass was standing there I waiting for me. <laughs> and white, and I had a very bad Beatles haircut. And I was like, um, hello. Tis <laughs> <laughs> I. Were you in like proper uniform and everything? Oh, like, uniform, tie, you know, full Monty. Wow. It was great. That's awesome. And terrible. <laughs> That's a, we're going to have to do no some pictures, digging and find No, no we got to find right, pictures. No, no, no. Can we, can we do some digging on who's going to have, who's going to have the photos of Mark Firth in yeah. that outfit with that haircut? Yeah. If I, anybody out there can find me a photo of that, yeah. I, we will put them on the show or at least yeah. give them a shout out for sure. <laughs> yeah. Aquith Quaker boarding school. It was fun. First thing they did was beat us. <laughs> Okay, yearbook. Yeah. Track it down. <laughs> Track it down. We'll find that. Anyway, that kind of gave me the, uh, first of all, it put me off flying forever because we used to do three flights to the school and three flights back each way. So 36 flights a year. And it was on Zambia Airways. So only until we landed at Heathrow did we get onto a little plane that flew us up to Yorkshire. But those Zambia Airways planes were insane like rattling and oh yeah. we're only running on three engines today because the fourth engine doesn't want to work stuff Sw- like that switching seats putting the heavier dudes like yourself yeah. on the right hand yeah, side yeah, just yeah. to hey, adjust the weight. <laughs> get on the right lad yeah, can you move to seat <laughs> a please <laughs> <laughs> we were once on the runway so there was no no lights at the local airport so you had to leave before the sunset so we're all on the plane taxiing down just as he starts to turn, everything goes, and the hydraulics go on the plane, just as we're turning to, you know, hit the throttle. And so he doesn't have steering, brakes, anything, no lights. I don't know what happened. It just was like, went black. And we went off the runway and just bumped off into the bushes for like five minutes, because, you know, we had a bit of space. (laughs) And the guy comes out and he goes, hmm, we seem to be, uh, having a little trouble with the hydraulics so uh we're gonna get you back to the terminal and you're gonna all call your parents to come get you there was one telephone <laughs> nobody had cell phones it was 1982 or Wait, but the whole plane is stocked with kids yeah we're all going back to boarding school oh. yeah there's a couple of grown-ups happen to be you know going somewhere wherever Jeez. grown-ups go who knows <laughs> <laughs> but we were all ready for some like flying fun you know, with bottles of vodka hidden in our <laughs> luggage and stuff like that. Nice. Not me, honestly, Dad. Um, and then, so they drive the little truck with the stairs on the back, like bumping across the field. We're looking out the window. <laughs> it's bumping along. He's back and forth trying to get the right angle. They open the door, let us off. We have to walk all the way back. It's like a mile back to the terminal. And then every person's like... I mean, my phone number was three, four, five, six. So when it was finally my turn, three, four, five, six, ring, ring, just rang, 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 because it was an hour's drive away. So <laughs> they hadn't even got home yet. Oh, man. So, yeah, anyway, good times. So I don't like flying. Okay. <laughs> Not a big fan. Okay. 
Is that where you ride your bike so much? That's where I ride my bike everywhere. <laughs> you get a new look. Because I would fly from Monterey to, to the restaurant. Right. Yeah. No. It could happen, though. Okay, so so we're in boarding school and whatnot, but but what what's get what's gonna get you to this beautiful country that we have? The Sunny Burks? No, 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 no. Take take oh. me to take 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 me to the U.S. Brooklyn. Brooklyn. I. How did I get there? Um, I got my call-up papers for the South African Army. I'd left Zambia. My dad had moved back to England. I moved with him. I didn't do the right college course that he wanted me to do. So then I had to find a council flat. It wasn't a lot of fun. So I called my mom in Johannesburg and she said, I've just left Ken the Rat, her second husband. You should come live with me in Johannesburg. So I got a job in a local nightclub called The New Rebecca's. Mm. Never met the old Rebecca. <laughs> yeah. Um, and saved up money, flew over there. And then lived there for about a year and a half and got my, if you want to stay, you need to join the South African army. And this is 1987, I think. It's coming from your parents or from the government? From the government. Oh. Yeah, yeah, you can't stay in the country. I had a British passport, so. You can't stay in the country unless you give up your passport, you join the army, you do your national service. So I thought, well, that's not a very good idea. This is 10 years before the end of apartheid. So, um, seven years before the end. Give me a little bit of um, wine while you... Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I, I moved to London, lived in London for a year, didn't really like it. And then I went to Spain for a couple of months, really dodgy, like Toro, Costa del Sol, Toro, Toro Molinos, Marbella. And I met a guy and his girlfriend and he said, I'm going to Italy next year to watch the World Cup. It was 1990. So I thought, oh, no, that sounds fun. So I stayed in touch with them. And uh, March calls me. He said, I'm at the British Institute in Florence. I've got a huge apartment. The World Cup starts June 15th or whatever. So uh, I got there a month early, got a job selling leather bags in the, in the market in Florence. And uh, went to a few games, watched the U.S. get beat by Czechoslovakia 5-1 in Florence. And then a bunch of guys I knew all went to Rimini to watch an England game and all got deported. Never came back. <laughs> Meanwhile, you were the one and I just peddling, loved. peddling leather bags on yeah. the corner. Yeah, I was in the San Lorenzo market selling bags, selling belts, having a rare old time. And uh, I liked it. I was like, well, where am I going to go next? So I stayed, in, in, uh, stayed there for a year. And then I got a call from my mom. I met a lovely guy. Meanwhile, Ken the Rat has died in a car crash, sadly. R.I.P. Ken the Rat. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I say to my, my, my roommate and my fellow bag seller, James from Chicago, do you want to come to South Africa? My mom's getting married. And he said, sure, mate. He's from Chicago, so I don't know why he said it like that. <laughs> and uh, so we basically sold everything we had and a few things we didn't. And uh, had enough money, and we got a flight to London. Then I borrowed money from my bank. <laughs> I think I paid him back. And uh, we got tickets, but we couldn't get tickets on the same day. But we promised each other we'd wear our Keith Haring Free South Africa shirts on the plane. Awesome. Which, 
both of us nearly got our asses kicked. <laughs> and actually, when we got to customers, we both chickened out <laughs> customs and we, uh, we put like a shirt over it. Um, and then, uh, so I got there first, obviously, to tell my mom, oh, by the way, I'm bringing a friend. And she said, where have you been? I, I've been calling that apartment. Uh, we postponed the wedding for six months. I was like, oh, shit. All right. She said, Cape Town's lovely. <laughs> so my mom shipped us off to Cape Town. And we spent six months working at the Hard Rock Cafe in Cape Town. And uh, ended up back in Johannesburg. And at some point, I felt, you know, the long arm of the South African Defense Force was going to find me. And so I flew back. We were like, all right, we'll go to Barcelona and we'll work and do something for the Olympics. This is James and I. So uh, we fly back to London and he says, I'm going to go to Amsterdam. It's my birthday. I've got some friends there. So he goes to Amsterdam. I stay in London, get a job, save up a little more money so I can get to Barcelona. I meet a girl in a pub and she says to me, in a Yorkshire accent, which I won't try. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to do it. Yeah, do it. Mark, are you going to Barcelona? <laughs> now, this is woman is beautiful. She's like six foot. And anyway, I won't go into any more detail than that. But she no, had six the foot beautiful roughest, rough voice. roughest accent you've ever heard. You could barely Sounds understand amazing. the word she said. And I said, yeah, I'm actually going to uh, find tickets tomorrow. And she says, I, I, can I come with you? And I was like, what's your name? She said, Tina. I said, all right, Tina. Let's come meet you tomorrow. We'll go to the to travel agent. And uh, the two of us ended up in Barcelona. James was nowhere to be seen. And it was before cell phones. So, like, what, what are you going to do? I told you I would ramble and ramble for hours, by the way. No, this is crazy. Because as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking to myself, like, we got to come up with a way of telling people's stories <laughs> in, in, like, four minutes. Because, like... I've always thought, like, man, like my life would be a crazy movie. But as I'm listening to this, this sounds like a, a new iteration of mm -hmm. Euro Trip. You're like bouncing yeah. all over the place. This is wild. Yeah, it's like European vacation with Chevy Chase. <laughs> I mean, it's all fair. But yeah. uh, long story short, we both, she gets a job on the Olympic Village selling sandwiches, and I get a job mm -hmm. as a laborer. They're paying, she's making $1,000 a day. Just She goes to the supermarket buy some baguette and some ham and make sandwiches and sells them to all the, you know, Italians, Dutch, English, all the people working on the building site. And I'm getting paid as a laborer to carry sheetrock up and down the stairs, a thousand dollars a week cash. It's insane. They want to get the Olympic village finished. Gotta get it done. So we spent money like we, <laughs> we went out every night. I mean, Barcelona is a lot of fun. <laughs> we went out every night. I was like buying clothes and, you know, but we worked six, seven days a week. Still managed to stay out all night. And uh, finally they said, okay, the Olympics starts in two days. Let's clean up the site. Cleaned up the site and then we fired all of us. And I was thinking, well, you know, they didn't finish it. It's just, it's half finished. So surely we're going to have a job. They'll call me on Friday. But there was like a very funny little, the, 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 the mascot for the Barcelona games was called Kobe. And it's a picture of him with his empty pockets. <laughs> <laughs> And that's exactly what happened. So I had spent for what six months, a thousand dollars a week was gone. I had to hitch all the way back to Florence, where my friends still lived in my old apartment. 
and like sleep on their couch until I could find a place. And I was back selling leather bags. I oh just my gosh. like gone on this epic trip and I was ri- right back in Florence. So, uh, yes. So then I, I, uh, I got a job in my favorite bar, Stonehenge. And uh, I started doing a happy hour for s- students, like British and American students. And then every one of them said, you know, what are you doing here? You should go open a bar in America. And I said, sure, I'll go to Boston. And they were like, what? <laughs> Boston? I like you these go people. go to New York. I like these people. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't go to Boston, even though I had a job, because my friend, one of the leather bag sellers, dad apparently owned a bunch of bars and restaurants in uh, in uh, in Boston, but I ended up in New York because I met a girl from Brooklyn, and uh, that was, there you go. I was in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, and I, uh, I went did some a, things in Brooklyn. Yeah, I went to uh, I went to a, to the Odeon for as a job. I, so I had, by this time I'd saved up three thousand dollars because I was working hard in in, in Florence in my little dive bar called Stonehenge, and uh, in two weeks I'd spent the whole lot. <laughs> I'm not very good with money. <laughs> <laughs> And my friend was like, well, they're hiring at the Odeon. They interview every Tuesday. So I walked in. There was a guy called Bruce and a guy called Edward. Edward loves Italy and has a house in Rome. And Bruce was from Zambia. He was from the town that the plane nearly crashed at, Ndola. He was from that town. And I said, well, I got the job then, right? Yeah, you're in. <laughs> and they were like, okay, maybe we'll give you a trial for a week. So, uh, yeah, I worked at the Odeon. Then, Which is awesome because I grew up like right hey, down hey, the block down from the Odeon yeah. and my first girlfriend in third grade, her father was the chef of the Odeon and he's one of the people who got me. Stephen Lyle? Yeah, Steve Lyle. Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. You know he lives in Hillsdale now, right? Yeah. He, he, he bought a house up here. He's now in the Berkshires. In fact, we should jot him down as somebody yeah, to get on great. the show because he, he's seen a lot of shit and he's opened a yeah. lot of restaurants for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, the question is, is there a chance that you saw Mark at the Odeon? No, I, I, I wasn't really eating at the Odeon at that no. point. I was more, you know, skateboarding past it. Yeah, my uh, first Thursday night, they had a late shift on every night. Most of the waiters finished at 11. And if you, the, the more you got in with the, you know, the better you were, you got one of those late shifts. So finally I got the Thursday night. My first Thursday, I had Robert De Niro, Harvey Keitel, Calvin Klein, <laughs> like you could go to every table, Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson, every table was like a major celebrity. And it was just me <laughs> and a bartender. <laughs> Tribeca, was, Tribeca was hot. Bullets. John Kennedy Jr. He used to ask me for cigarettes. And then one night, this new person, while I was trailing a new person and John Kennedy Jr. came up to me. What, what do we call him for short? I don't know. JJ, John John. Anyway, he came up to me and he said, you got a cigarette? I'm like, sure, John, no worries. Give me a cigarette. It's back when you could smoke in the restaurants. And uh, this girl was like, Those are good oh times. my God, you know him? I'm like, yeah, he comes here every night. <laughs> I mean, I had an inkling, right? His last name was Kennedy. I saw the credit card slip, but I didn't really think about it too you much. Didn't go- you, you didn't Google him? You're serving, <laughs> no, no Google. <laughs> God, if only I'd invented Google right there. <laughs> Uh, super nice, super nice people, all of them. Lou Reed was a bit of a misery, but um, yeah, I just ended up serving all these people and uh, having a good old time. It was great. That's awesome. And then I had left, no, then I, <laughs> then I went to Balthazar, worked to Balthazar, 
and uh, wow, you hit the classics huh? oh yeah 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 you gotta you know i like a tie okay you know, so i had my my white jacket i remember my first night my friends came to see me at balthazar and i'm wearing my white balthazar jacket i got one of my old ties from domsey's the thrift store in brooklyn like 10 cents each or something i still have like 500 ties and i'm like and they're like mark you look so young and i look around me at this point i'm 29 maybe 30 no 29 and uh i look around me and one guy's called joe he's uh he's his brother's the act uh route 60 what was that movie something 66 damn it joe italian last name i'll remember it but he's like 70 and the other guy was in his 70s too and i looked and i'm like are you, are you kidding me of course i look young i'm with these two old fuckers <laughs> aren't i which they really liked um and then uh, yeah decided one day to well we are you know i mean in the back of my mind i was like look i didn't go to college I haven't got a credit card. I don't have a driver's license. I'm almost 30 years old. What am I doing? So I picked up some work. I was hanging drapes with one lady and I was working at this Italian place with my old friend from Florence called Ribolita. You ever go to Ribolita? I don't think so. Great little place, Park Avenue and 18th Street. And, uh, and I just started working, just like, I'm going to save money, I'm going to save money. And a little diner in Williamsburg up the street from my loft came up for sale. And my roommate was working at the Odeon and we would be like, I mean, we don't do it now. We're never going to do it. And the building was for sale. Ray's dad, Ray, had owned it. And he was famous for having a massive Colt 45 behind the bar and asking if you wanted gravy or natural juices on your turkey sandwich. Couldn't ever work out which was what <laughs> the difference was. They both looked like crap. <laughs> and uh, I remember when he showed, when Ray Jr. showed us the place, he opened the door. Now, no one has been in this place for like two years. It was like, you know, it's my skeletons. Mm -hmm. And he's got a police badge around his neck, but he's not a policeman. And Good he opens look. the door and he literally pulls out like a snub nose revolver and does like, does like a roll on the floor, or like a, a Cagney and Lacey <laughs> move. And, and he's like, did you hear that? And we were like, the ghost of a thousand cockroaches? No. <laughs> So the place was for sale, 120000 I didn't have a green card. And Andrew's like, I'm not buying a fucking diner in Brooklyn. <laughs> what would we do with it? And I was like, well, I'll sleep in it. But uh, we got our landlord from the loft to buy the building for us. And he gave us the first year free <laughs> because we were apparently the craziest people he'd ever met. Oh my God. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was busy. Well, of course, we found a really good chef, so Caroline Fidanza, so wow how much did the network that you had at the moment play a part in finding staff and chef and just like oh so we did everything out? i bartended and host andrew bartended waited tables hosted his girlfriend at the time who was working at the odeon she waited tables caroline had a couple of friends so then they <clears> worked and then funny thing is derek holt who lives up the street is a graphic designer he was one of our first line cooks and he made all the iconic like diner shirts, Marlowe and Sons shirts. He lives on Bridge Street now. Really? And he just did the menu for me and the t-shirt for the restaurant. It's like we've come full circle. Wow. Now we just need Caroline to come and do a few shifts at the restaurant. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was crazy. We, we all worked seven days a week. Just so no, we didn't take credit cards for the first six months. 
We'd like go home with money stuffed in our <laughs> pockets. The what, first what night we invited all of our friends and I, I counted the draw at the end of the night. I goes, Andrew, we made $800. And he went, yeah, we spent $2,000 on booze, you idiot. <laughs> Exciting nonetheless, though. Yes, I was like, like, there we go, finally some money. money. What year was that? That was 1998. New Year's Eve, 98 we opened. And I was working at Balthazar, I was hanging drapes. Just before we opened, I got a job in Vancouver, um, hanging drapes with this lady Michelle and my friend Matthew. And uh, we called it Hanging with Michelle. And we'd do like Bette Midler's house, Tatum O'Neill's house, Rosie O'Donnell. We'd like go all over hanging these beautiful drapes. And she said, okay, there's this Iranian billionaire in Vancouver Island has this massive mansion and we've got the, we're doing all the drapes. So I'm going to fly you guys there, 250 a day. And I told Andrew, he goes, that's an ice machine. And I'm like, yeah, it is. (laughs) So I don't have a green card. I just have my temporary work permit thing. And you're not supposed to leave, leave the country. But there I am at the airport, popping my Valium, (laughs) drinking wine (laughs) with Matthew and Michelle. Five days, worked 12-hour days, drank all night, back hanging drapes. The last day I was so hungover, they wrapped me in a curtain. And every time the lady came around, they were like, oh, yeah, we, we Mark said, I think he's in the other room, just making sure that the pattern matches. The and uh, <laughs> but I'm actually wrapped in the curtain behind the like. I met, I met two English girls who worked at Marks and Spencer's in, in Vancouver, and they took me out in the town. <laughs> Anyway, we get back on the plane, take our Valium. So we've been working and drinking for five days straight. I've got my $1,500 check in my pocket. Get to the airport or get to the customs. Matthew sails through because he's been there for years, has a green card. And the guy looks at this and goes, what the fuck are you doing? You can't leave the country. And I was like, what do you mean? I I work for this lady and I got a job. It's Christmas Eve. And I'm high as a kite, obviously. <laughs> and uh, he, he's like, sit in that chair. He oh. said, we need to deport you. And I said, well, are you going to deport me to Zambia? Are you going to deport me to South Africa or, or England? Because actually my dad lives in Scotland. But it's kind of cold this time of year. And I'm just totally relaxed. And then I pick up my, Matthew had given me like Bukowski, the post office or post office, which I'm reading this Bukowski book, sitting there sh- shit in my pants. But I'm really very calm on the exterior. <laughs> And I, in my mind, I'm like, where am I going to be tomorrow? I have no idea where I'm going to be tomorrow. So uh, I'm there for like two hours. And then I, I am married, by the way. I'm married to Maura, you know, because, you know, I'm in love and I'm getting my green card. <laughs> and um, all these names have been changed, by the way. And uh, I, I say to the guys, like, you know, my wife's in the parking lot. She's going to be losing her mind right now. I mean, she does, she's an American citizen. She has no idea that I wasn't allowed to leave. I mean, we need this money, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, and this book is getting super boring. And uh, he comes up and he says, you see that door over there? And I said, yep. He goes, go through that door. This never happened. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is behind the door? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or who? <laughs> Sorry, stick my book in my bag and get everything. I walk through the door and I'm in the airport and it's just people milling around. I'm like, I'm free. <laughs> and he just let me go. Wow. <laughs> wow. And yeah, so there you go. That would not happen. Now I'm that. an American citizen. There you go. And that never happened. That's awesome. Yeah. It was a good time. 
So you got the ice maker. I got the ice maker. I think it's still running. <laughs> the, re the restaurant. 22 years later. So, so Diner was the first one. Diner was the first. Then just before 9-11, we found a tiny space on Bedford between South 2nd and South 3rd. And our um, sous chef, uh, damn, what was his name? Didn't end well. So the last time I saw him, he was like up against the wall and the police had the guns out against him. He was like, like a binge drinker, super lovely guy, but he would go on these binges. And um, says the guy who was rolled up in curtains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pot calling the kill. Um, so, uh, yeah, he was a great chef. He was from, I think he was from Oaxaca. And uh, he made amazing staff meal. So we're like, staff meal, let's open a restaurant. <laughs> yes. And uh, so we found this place and it had this old sign. It looked like a shopping cart and then like a pile of beans with an egg on it or something. It was like one of those old school, you know, supermarket signs. And it said, Tonita. And the guy, Ishmael, who owned the restaurant that was renting to us, that was his wife. And Tonita owned the restaurant and they owned the building. And he said, you know, my wife has died, so I need to rent out the restaurant. And we're like, great. So we had all these menus. Derek, who lives down the street, did all these menus. And it said, Tonita, da-da-da-da. And then we had, like, you know, lime soup and tacos and, you know, all this great Mexican food. And it was super authentic. We were like, don't cook for gringos. Just, you know, cook the food you want to make and make it spicy and do everything the way you do it at home. And we got our friend, the electrician, who would show up, sit in his van with a pint of vodka, drinking at seven in the morning, and then he'd come in and do the... So I wonder if it's still... It might have burned down by now, but <laughs> he, we said, hey, will you, will you wire up the sign? So the opening night, we flicked the switch, and it said, Tonita! And then it was like, restaurant, and da-da-da. And we heard the stomping, we heard this running down the stairs, and the guy comes screaming, he's like, my wife's name is flashing in the window! <laughs> We're like, yeah, we called it Tonita. He's like, turn off the sign. <laughs> We're like, really? He's like, yes. And he's fucking going crazy. Um, so we, we call up Derek and we're like, shit, we're going to have to change the menus. He goes, no, you're not. He says, I'll make a B. You just stamp a B over all the T's oh. and call it Bonita. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, genius idea. <laughs> Yo, you have a thing with names, dude. <laughs> You got a thing with names. That's yeah. insane. Yeah, so Bonita lasts a long time. So we signed. So did the sign. We were in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sign. I don't even know if it's there anymore. Um, but uh, he, uh, after we had an eight-year lease, we signed it three days after 9-11. He said, oh, you still want to sign the lease? And we're like, yeah, we're, we're committed to Brooklyn. This is where we live. We want to do this restaurant. And we, you know, like put a lot of thought and energy into this whole place. And uh, he doubled our rent from 2,500 to 5,000 at the end of the eight years. And there wasn't a day that didn't go by where he complained. He once took us all the way to court with a picture of all the people standing outside the restaurant saying that it was disturbing the neighborhood and he couldn't sleep and da 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 da. And it was the judge looked at it and there was one person's foot with a New Balance sneaker on. And it was the fucking New York Marathon. He'd taken a picture out his window of all the people and said that that was happening no every day. Oh and he got busted for that, for that little foot for the New York Marathon. Wow. So then he doubled the rent and he really thought we weren't going to call it bluff. And we were like, all right. We went in there one day. We took the stove, everything we'd put in, we took out. <laughs> Left him with this, like, his empty restaurant. 
Wow. Actually, what the half of the bar is table 52 at Marlow and that, uh, very other, well. The other oh. one, yeah. very well. The other, whatever these first ones are called. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yep. There you go. That is awesome. That is pretty wild. How does that, uh, so from that point on, how does that, how, do, how does a, a man that opened all these restaurants and bars in Brooklyn end up in the Berkshires? Well, you, you know, know we, were, we always wanted a farm because we were, we were doing farm to table because Caroline, the chef, was just fully committed to, she worked at um, Peter Hoffman's restaurant in, see, look at this, the brain is gone, I can't remember a thing anymore. She worked at a farm to table restaurant in Soho before she started with us and that she brought that whole ethos with her. And so we were buying from local farmers for years and years. And, and the more we got into it, we, we actually one year rented a, a refrigerated truck and drove to Pennsylvania, drove upstate and would pick up vegetables. For at this point, I think we had, I think maybe we just had Marlow and, no, we might just had Bonita and, and, and Diner at the time, but we would fill up this truck and drive it back. And then whatever we had left over, we'd go to other restaurants in Brooklyn and say, hey, we just came back from Pennsylvania with all this great produce. Do you want to buy some? And they would look at us like, why? Baldor's coming in a couple of hours, man. <laughs> like, why would we buy this fresh stuff that you just got from an Amish organic farmer? They thought we were completely insane. So we're like, oh shit, it looks like we'll be selling that too. So <laughs> can we open another shift? We have an extra night? up on carrots this week but then there was the massive uh, remember the massive blackout in uh, was it 2008 well we still had the refrigerated truck <laughs> so every like the rest of them we just piled everything in the truck wow. and we were totally fine wow. everything was saved two days later we opened everybody else was closed nobody had any food we had all that in the electric truck that's so cool because that you you sought that out because now that truck and that whole model is is are, is big business. I yeah, mean, you think yeah. about Marty's, Marty's local. Yeah, yeah Marty's yeah, local. Yeah. They drive around a truck yeah. and they go farm to farm picking it up, bring it yeah. to restaurants. And that even for us up here that has access to direct has certainly helped out from the farmer side, where so many of them are like, I'd rather you just go through Marty's. It's so much easier. Yeah, it's streamlined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't bother me. Yeah, don't I'm bother. Busy. I don't. I don't want. I don't want to drive. I don't want to talk to you. I yeah. just want a, sh a pick sheet. And, yeah. and it's been a streamlined thing. But here you are in Brooklyn, yeah. people figuring out how do nuts. we get it done. Yeah. Well, we need it for us. So you know, we we bought. I still actually have the car. It's a old '66 Lincoln, and we bought it. Andrew and I were like, we need a car. And of course we're idiots. So we bought a 66 Lincoln <laughs> Continental convertible <laughs> with suicide doors of Frank Santora, who was Donald Trump's dad's business partner, who had a garage in, in Williamsburg. And he basically would befriend all these widows and buy their cars of their husband's cars off the genius. <laughs> Another great business. And so model. we went in there and there was the there was a gold caddy two door. 30 feet long there was this lincoln there was a you know a bunch of other like chrysler new yorkers and he was like but you know six grand seven five four and we were like we're going for the lincoln <laughs> <laughs> so we used to drive it to the farmer's market and fill it full of vegetables <laughs> it's that big wow. it's funny because i still have the car and i never drive it up here because it's the worst berkshire car 
First of all, people would be like, who the hell's that idiot? <laughs> but you know, when you're driving to Long Island or driving through like Flatbush, that car, everybody loves it. What year is that? That's yeah. amazing. Here they're like, get off the road, you gas guzzling idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it's electric. <laughs> it's, bi it's biodiesel. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Flintstone car, honest. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm seriously embarrassed to drive it, but... I gotta, I'm saving up for my Rivian, so I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell it. I mean, it's just sitting there. Five, six. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, though. Now that new show with the Lincoln Lawyer is out, maybe I'll get some more money for it. Sweet. Yeah. Get it in ice, the moment. Get a new ice maker for uh, yeah. the Prairie Well. Yeah. <laughs> I could probably sell it for scrap. Anyway. Yeah, so uh, we're running around selling vegetables. Oh, and Andrew's, so. Andrew's wife now, Kate, her dad decided to grow organic tomatoes. So he, he, he instead of he doesn't do things by halves, he, he rented like 100 acres and planted so many tomatoes. And they were amazing, but he just didn't have the infrastructure to do anything. So we drove there with the, the, the refrigerator truck, filled it, and... I'm still wearing the suit because I my thing was I don't know it's kind of cheesy now but the 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 secondhand warehouse down the street from us had ten dollar suits so if you spent a good few hours there I had Armani Christian Dior Ralph Lauren all these suits and I'd like tuck you know get them tailored and fit so I would wear these ten dollar suits and everybody else was covered in tattoos and wearing, you know, Ramones t-shirts, and I'm wearing my $10 suit <laughs> with my 50 cent tie. Driving home in your Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, and driving around in my Lincoln when gas was $2 a gallon. And uh, so now we're selling tomatoes at the back of a, in, at, at the McCarran Farmer's Market from, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I would like, I'd work until two, three, four in the morning, and be like, shit, it's seven o'clock, I've got to be at the farmer's market. And I would just put on the clothes that I'd taken off because I was like always on the line. And uh, so I was there in my suit, <laughs> no tie, <laughs> at eight. We were like, and I would have glitter on my face. <laughs> Wild times in Brooklyn back then. <laughs> and I uh, didn't wear the eyeliner anymore. That, that was my, my, my youth, my new romantic days. But uh, people would look at me and they'd be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> what is in these tomatoes? Which, if we have time, reminds me of uh, my Marco Pierre White story. Are we, do we want to hear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah please. please. Okay. So a few years ago, Marco Pierre White's doing a documentary series, and he's running all over New York. Fill me up a little bit here so I can hear so, you better. I'm at the restaurant. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. At this point, we have the butcher shop, Marlowe and Daughters. We have Marlowe and Sons. We have Dinah. And we've turned Bonita we've lost, but we haven't we had another Bonita, which is now Romans, a little Italian place. And so Marco Pierre White comes in and he basically staggers in the front door and there's a camera crew with him. And it's ten o'clock in the morning, it's like a Wednesday. I don't even know what I'm doing. Maybe I'm doing inventory or ordering wine or something. But I look at him and I'm like, Is that Marco Pierre White? And I don't follow, like I never followed chefs or anything. I mean, I'm not from a food background until I ended up in New York working in restaurants. And, uh, you know, I was selling brain dead shots. What do you call those when you put the Kahlua and Bailey's in a shot? 
But anyway, that's what I was doing in Florence <laughs> and selling leather bags. But uh, so I go in the kitchen. I'm like, is that Marco Pierre White? And they're like, yeah, what, what the hell is he doing? I said, he's, he's with a bunch of guys. They've got a camera and everything. I, I, I said, he, he said he wants a burger. And they're like, oh, okay. I'm like, so you guys make him a burger. I'll, I'll, I'll give him a tour. So I take him to the butcher shop and he's like running around and he's wearing a tuxedo shirt, but the jacket's long gone. The cufflinks are gone. It's, he's flapping around. Whoops. And uh, I'm like, oh, come and see the butcher shop. Come and see the grocery store. This is where we do our oysters. Da, da, da. This is the walk-in. This is, you know, we butcher the meat here. And I'd give him the whole tour and he's like, where's my fucking burger? But he's posh. So he's like, where's my bloody burger? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's, it's coming. It's, it's, let me go and check in the kitchen. I go in the kitchen. Like, where the hell is this burger? I'm like, well, the grill wasn't on, and we didn't know if you were joking or not. Like, where's the burger? We haven't made it yet. I'm like, oh, Jesus. I go out there, and he's like, where's my burger? And I'm like, well, it's going to be a little while still because we had to turn the grill on. And he pulls out a $100, like a big wad of bills. He gets a $100 bill. He rips it in half, throws 50 50 half a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> this is how out of it he is. <laughs> throws a half a hundred dollar bill on the counter and storms out with his camera crew and i'm like what the hell just happened if if you don't know who marco pierre white is google him right now pause this episode and go ahead and google him because he is one of the most influential and first badass chefs crazy badass he he had a restaurant across so at some point in my travels i ended up um it was like the summer of 95 i went to my brother's wedding in kenya didn't have enough money to get back to New York. I was working at the Odeon and I had my job. I was just gone for the, you know, for my brother's wedding. And I ended up working in London for three months just to make enough money to get back to New York. And uh, I, uh, nobody would give me a job. I'm like, I work at one of the busiest restaurants in New York, the Odeon. Like I, I have five tables. I make $700 a night in tips, etc. Nobody would give me a job. I go into Planet Hollywood. I tell them my spiel, they look at me, I say, I grew up in Zambia, you're hired. So I have a badge, Mark, Zambia. <laughs> <laughs> and I work at Valley Hollywood for two months. <laughs> One of my customers, the first day, Marco fucking Pierre White. No way. <laughs> because his kids love Planet Hollywood. So this is way before the $100 bill incident. His kids... Like love Planet Hollywood and like burgers and anything American. And his super fancy restaurant that I can't remember the name of um, is across the street in Leicester Square. <laughs> so, so he, just he was there every Saturday for brunch. I think he was divorced and that's when he had his kids. And he'd sit there and he'd be wearing his full outfit. Like the chef whites and everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> in, an, in another life, I'm going to meet you at my restaurant. Yeah. And you're going to rip up a $100 bill and throw it in my face. That's awesome. And yeah. the fact that you said you put 50 on the table yeah, is right. so good. So good. <laughs> it makes logical sense. It's exactly what I was going for. We all understood. Oh, wild. That's awesome. Yeah, and then next day I woke up and I was in the Berkshires. <laughs> in the Berkshires. That, there's definitely more to that story. Yeah, no. So we were looking for farms. That's how I segued and meandered um so we started looking at farms to buy just so we could have our own farm for the restaurants because we were starting to get priced out in certain areas a lot of people are now selling in union square and 
other restaurants were really catching on the whole farm to table. So we were like, well, we need our own, we need our own land. So we were looking for 20 acres and we looked upstate for seven years and every place we found was, oh, it's a hundred thousand, but the taxes are 20,000 a year and it's next to a gun range or it's, you know, there's no schools or there's this, there was always something wrong. And uh, we came to visit Helen and Jean-Francois because we knew them from Brooklyn. Our kids were the same age, still are, actually. And um, we, uh, we were like, wow, this is a secret. <laughs> this is really nice. What's great what? What's it called? <laughs> and we loved it. And I had another friend, Alejandro, up here. And uh, he, you know, this serendipity thing happened. And we... And what year is this that you're like... This is 2011. 2011. 10-11. Yeah. And uh, I think we came up in the winter of 2010 and then we got a call in like December to look at this place that I'm at now. And we came up and Tim Lovett was a, no, no, not Tim, the other Tim, the other Tim, the, uh, the other realtor called Tim. Shit. You see, it's Tim. all gone. Donnelly. Okay, I don't Is know it? Tim Donnelly. Anyway, nice chat. Um, so he took us and we we're like on this hill, it's 82 acres and he slips and slides down the hill on his butt in the snow. And I'm like, this is a great place. And, uh, we, uh, we couldn't afford it because it was just after the subprime mortgage thing. Anyone hasn't heard of that. They should watch that movie, the big short. And, um, yeah, we, uh, we were like, we're super keen. And the lady who was selling it to us was like, well, I want this much. And the banker was like, well, we're going to give you this much. And I was like, well, I only have this much. And we did some juggling for about six months. And then the land trust helped us buy it. And we put it under agricultural conservancy. And uh, I basically, we, we got the place. And then I thought, well, I'll raise ducks and chickens and sheep. And then I'll take them down. And then I'll drop them off at the butcher shop. And I'll do paperwork and payroll for two days. And I'll come back and... And I would drive down there with like the saddest face. And then I'd turn around two days later and I'd be driving back with a big smile. And I was like, you know, read yeah. the signs, fella. Yeah, read the signs. Read the signs. Nice. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, we divvied it up and uh, I, uh, I got out. I got out. So, I mean, opening those restaurants was the best thing I ever did. But selling them was pretty, pretty much uh, equal. Like <laughs> yeah. getting out and having the freedom and... Just being able to, because when you're so buried in something, we just did a project every two years. We're opening new places. We're traveling. We had all these like ideas. I mean, we went to LA to look at like hotels in the early 2000s and we were going to Miami to open a diner in Miami and we like had all these ideas and really we just stayed in Brooklyn and it was just time consuming. You didn't, you didn't get to enjoy other restaurants because you work seven days a week or you're always involved and, and just, I took a year off and I was like, oh, this is amazing. What am I going to do? Well, that <laughs> I mean, was my next question is like, did you, how quickly did you feel like you had to get back into it? You know, I enjoyed that year and I tried a bunch, you know, I was like, I'll raise pigs and sell them. And then my, my two butchers, three butchers actually from Marlowe and Daughters had opened the meat hook at that point. And uh, they were super keen to, for me to raise pigs for them. And I just was like, you know what am I going to do with all these suits? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even started on the shoes yet. So uh, 
I say, you know, I think my heart is in the restaurant business. So what, what do we need in Great Barrington? And what we needed at the time was a place where you could get a burger and a martini and a fried chicken and a Budweiser or whatever equivalent. And it was like, I felt like, you know, Allium was great. I loved it there and there were other places, but I felt like nobody was really kind of trying to do lowbrow, highbrow and, yeah. and be relaxed, like no tablecloths. And it was just exactly like diner, you know, it was like the same Van Marlowe, the same philosophy of good food, you know, affordable and, you know, the more expensive stuff and you get to choose. So, so yeah, we opened and I thought, well, if it doesn't work, I'll be sleeping in the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Done and that. apparently it did. So we, here we are. That's you know, awesome. Despite COVID. And just, just to come back, cause you gave us the story about, uh, about the Mexican sign. But you had a little bit of issues with the naming mm. here in Great Barrington too, because I I, had, I was Remind gone. Me, at that I've forgotten all about. No, that. I was <laughs> gone at that point, and I I can look back if I searched Bell and Anchor in my like phone right now, there would be texts like, "Hey, meet me at Bell and Anchor, meet me at Bell yeah. and Anchor." But by the time I actually moved back here, I was like, "What happened to that place?" Yeah, and then I some figured, pretentious asshole took over. <laughs> <laughs> I guess <laughs> that's when I met you. <laughs> yeah, so we uh, my favorite pub in Cape Town was called the Bell and Anchor. And we were thinking like Herman Melville, like Moby Dick, you know, it's like, let's just play with that and, and just, you know, have a nautical theme and a nautical name and be nothing like that. Just do farm to table food. And, uh, we loved it. And, uh, somebody in Long Island had a restaurant called the Bell and Anchor who knew, but he didn't have it when we did the search. So between us doing the search, me building the place with a couple of my friends, which took a long time. Uh, somebody had changed their name from the anchor to the bell and anchor and trademarked it and then served us with a cease and desist. So luckily, what was it? Six, met six Ed, months into it. Yeah. We must've been six or eight months and it dragged out for months too, because we were like, why can't we send a very nice letter? Why can't we all live together in peace and hold hands? You can eat for free here. I probably don't like fried fish, but you know, and uh, he was, he had like the most expensive asshole lawyer, like a thousand dollar an hour, like the rudest asshole. Like we're obviously a family little business and we did our search. They knew that they'd used this name and trademarked it. We're idiots. We didn't trademark it because we didn't think to, we didn't think the guy in Cape Town was that concerned. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so any, in the end we settled, we, I don't think we paid him a couple of thousand dollars for infringement or whatever it was and i had already liked the name prairie whale because there's a guy in uh new marlborough mill river on the way there called ed klausmeyer super nice guy and he had a wood mill outside his house and i rode by on my bike one day and i said this thing's awesome i said i'm building a restaurant you know could you mill some wood for me and he said well i'll do it but you've got to help me and uh, he gave me a crazy cheap price. And uh, I'd cut these, Sean Stanton told me, like, you need to cut those cherry trees down. They're going to land on your garden. So I'd taken these trees down before the restaurant was even, we even, you know, paid for it. And uh, yeah, so this guy, Ed, and he helped me mill all this stuff. And my friend Noah was up from Brooklyn and we, we just milled wood for three days in a row, like 10 hour days and drank beer and one point I was like, Ed, I really need to use the bathroom. He said, yeah, just go in, you know, past those big trestle tables and on the left. 
And I walk in there and there's 300 lamps in this a room this big, 300 lamps. And I come out and I said, I didn't pee in a lamp. <laughs> I used the bathroom. And I came out and I said, Ed, was, you know, what's with all the lamps, dude? <laughs> <laughs> My best uh, American accent. And, um, <laughs> and he goes, oh, they're, uh, the, the, most of those lamps are prairie well lamps. And I was like, what? He said, you know, prairie well lamps. Like, what the hell is a prairie well? So that's what they called pigs in the 1800s. You, you, like, I, no, I didn't know that. Idiot. Jeez, I thought I was good at history too. And then uh, he, um, he explained the lard and the, you know, whale oil and the lack of whales and the overhunting and da-da-da and how they adapted all these lamps that used to be whale and now they run on lard and they were called prairie whale lamps because people were so much wittier and clever than we are back then before the internet. The internet's ruined everything, apart from memes. Um, and then uh, I said, that's a great name for a restaurant. And he was like, really? <laughs> Two minutes ago, you didn't know what that was. And uh, so I told Bettina, and she was like, I don't know, I think I still like Bell and Anchor. And then we got uh, sued. So you had a So I got Bell and Anchor. Yeah. That's so I mean, so, whoops, no, I didn't. Nope, nope, I got didn't uh, the Prairie Well. <laughs> that's, that's so cool. And so often it's the case we, you know we talked about it last week like where cantina came from and the fact that we we came up with so many names and actually josh helped us with like so many different logos and directions and what do we want this thing to look like and sometimes it's sitting there right in front of you yeah and it's not you're not as creative as you think you are yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, where you're like I, I can come up with something and then little do you know it's sitting right there and for me it was the guy who was like oh yeah it's out in the cantina and that was what he called his building Oh, Sam, uh, Mills. Sam Mills? Yeah. yeah. He was like, yeah, it's out in the can. It wasn't his business. Hey, Sam, you right? haven't finished painting my house here. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Marlowe and Sons is Mark and Tarlow. But I liked the ring of like the noir, film noir Marlowe, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so we were like, Marlowe and Sons, we both had sons, you know? And uh, then I was like, there's a bank called Mumford and Sons now? I mean, <laughs> rip off. Do we, <laughs> you do we sue, sue them? You call the lawyer in Long Island up, you're like, hey. <laughs> Dude, hey, hey, you, you're like the thousand bucks an hour guy, right? <laughs> um, what's this Mumford business? <laughs> Sounds a get, lot like Marlowe. Can we get them? Yeah. Can we get them? Yeah. I'm not litigious. <laughs> it's not my cup of tea. Live and let live. Well, Prairie Well opened and it immediately became a staple of Great Barrington. I mean, very quickly, it was it was where I think when you're able to collect the local GB crew and we all have that list of who those people are and they probably have tabs open at your business and mine still. Yeah. They have names on chairs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but when you when you tap into that, I think that that's the goal. And I'm I'm glad to hear that you spent a year. And one thing I really appreciate you saying is, what does Great Barrington need? And that was yeah. another thing we talked about last week of just the difference in how a business evolves and something you and I've been talking about a lot of how to grow businesses here as opposed to planting them here. Don't put something here, grow it. Here. Yeah, yeah. Read the room because you know, um, I it happened to me. What did I open four or five restaurants in Brooklyn? So you walk in and you say, oh, well, people are going to come in here and this is going to be here and these kind of people are going to go there and they're going to want this. And, and no, no, it never, never happens. Don't let people tell you it's going to happen. It, you can never tell. Now, I was super lucky because Joan 
was selling us garlic when we first opened and she said, I'd like to help you host. Now, do you guys remember Joan? I don't think so. Little Joan, she grew garlic. Joan Ritt, Max's Ritt's mom, Max Ritt's mom. Yes. So she was, she helped me host because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know who anybody was. So we would stand at the door, little and large. She was like, well, I'm not that large, but she was little. And she'd be like, you know how Bill Clinton, they were like, oh, he's famous because he knows, you know, he can remember people's faces, names, where they went to college. No, he couldn't. He had somebody behind him with the earliest little Google thing or whatever it was saying, oh, that's so-and-so. That I had Joan. And yeah. people were, oh, they owned the Mahewi. Oh, that's, you know, this person, that's that person. And she was amazing. She knew everybody, everybody's business, everyone. Bit of, oh, don't hire that person. They're never, they're not good. <laughs> you know, it's essential. She was amazing. And she really like helped me that first six months. And then she started getting, it's a, it's a tough job being a host. You gotta have very thick skin. And Joan, I think was just like, okay, this was fun, but it's not fun anymore <laughs> because people are assholes. <laughs> not all of you some of you and uh it just yeah she was amazing so she was great we like that was a real because it i i used to go to a restaurant called osnott's dish in williamsburg and we loved the place it was a moroccan little cafe and it was across the street from my old apartment nobody it, and i went i went there for three years every brunch like lunch three times a week and i worked at the odeon and i tipped s- silly and, you know, lunch was $12 and I'd leave 20 and, you know, we were in the business. We're like old, you know, we're, we're in the restaurant business together. Nobody ever asked my name, remembered my name or said hello or acted like we'd ever been there before. And finally, me and my ex-girlfriend, we looked at each other and we're like, we love Osnots, but it's like a, it's a one-way relationship. And I hate that. I hate, look, I'm not the best at remembering names and faces. I remember faces, but names I'm not very good at. But if I see you and you've been to the restaurant a few times, I appreciate that. And I say hello. Yeah. And this was one of my really early like restaurant lessons. Like you can't just take people for granted. It's just rude. You gotta just, you gotta make an effort. And if you can't, then hire someone who does. For sure. Because you could be the greatest person, just not have that personality. Then just don't be the front of house because, you know, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. And I, I, think, I think that's come through. I mean, so many people, even people that are new to the area. I was hanging out with Terry and Terry last night. Oh, they're from the, the best. Randall house. I love and they're, them. they're going on just like, how cool is it? Like you show up at the Prairie Will and like, <laughs> and Mark's there. And like, then you see these people over here and that, that that's where it starts with just noticing you got to pay attention. Yeah. The, the tiny it makes me laugh matter. when people say, oh, well, locals don't go there. <laughs> I'm like, um, <laughs> well, maybe you don't know them. <laughs> but this restaurant right now is 90% locals. Yeah. You know, and that's what makes it great for me. I mean, I don't want to go to work and see a different face every day. And did you, when you opened, did you bring people with you or did you just start? Well, right? Steve, the chef came. Yeah. Uh, Megan, the pastry chef came. Uh, Chelsea, the food runner, was working at a place called the Rabbit Hole in Williamsburg. She came up. She knew us from Brooklyn. Um, and you just said to Dan them, came with Steve. You just said to them in Brooklyn, you're like, hey, I moved to the Berkshires. You know, I mean, we've talked about accommodation before a lot. They, when Steve and Megan moved here, 
they both bought two bedroom houses, one in Sheffield, one in um, kind of on the border of Monterey for 180,000. Maybe these was 190 in, in Sheffield. And they were like, oh, I can afford to live here. And we had a busy restaurant and I, you know, we, we pay a living wage, you know, it's, and, and then gradually the pendulum has swung the other way now. Like, I mean, Steve could sell his house for 500,000, but where would he go? Right. And Megan could do the same thing, but where would she go? So yeah, we've, we've talked about it a lot and, uh, no, but that's, there's a, no solution that's yet, an, but that's what we need to find out. That's an awesome segue for us right there. I feel like we, and unless Rafa, you got anything else you want to touch on? I think that that's a, that's a great way to go ahead and bring up where I've been busy. Mark's been busy. I was coming into the Prairie Will every Sunday with the kids for brunch. And so, you know, we, we crossed paths. We're in the same community for sure. But it wasn't until recently that we started kicking it so much because of exactly that. And I think we got approached wanting to start a restaurant alliance. And so we were having coffee, I don't know, eight months ago now, having coffee yeah. with some dudes who were like, hey. Late fall. You guys are, you know, we want to make sure you guys are on board. We want to bring you into this thing. We want to create a restaurant alliance and really start to harmonize the businesses and figure out what the things are to, to really have the food economy here catch up to where the tourism is and everything else. I think they are all just they all just wanted more restaurants because they probably couldn't get into either of ours. And they're mm -hmm. like, we got to yeah. do more, more, more. Um, and so there's there's a there's a bunch of plans in the works and so many like very creative, very powerful people that were tapping into us and saying, you know, what what needs to be done and what do you think about this and let's make this list together. And Mark and I kind of chatted on the side, had a quick sidebar and and looked to them and said, look, until we sort out the housing situation, there's no point in trying to fix anything else because that is the foundation of everything. And with the employee crisis that's going on right now across the country and whatnot, I think that this is definitely one of those critical pieces that is showing us where the pitfall is. And that's why we've been talking about just that. And so many houses that, again, were $180,000 10 years ago, as soon as the pandemic started, just skyrocketed up and duplexes and multifamily homes that were being rented out to, to workforce people that were living and working here in town just got booted to the streets, essentially. I mean, quite literally, people were forced out of their house and right. asking their landlords that were selling, like, where do you expect me to go? And there were, there's been nothing, and the real estate agents did really well, and they were in the weeds, yeah, yeah. you know, like, like we've been for so long. I mean, long. they were looking for inventory. I bet they were. Yeah. They're, they were knocking on doors like, hey, uh, you've been here a while. You want to yeah. <laughs> move to Florida? <laughs> Great government. Or Otis. <laughs> Otis. <laughs> That's in Florida too, right? Uh, but Mark and I have been have been exploring. We we met up actually with an architect as we were both outside of the uh, the cove talking yeah. about what we could do with the cove. Yeah. Um, I said bowling. Yeah. But then it turns <laughs> out neither of us knew anything about bowling. Yeah. <laughs> How many pins? <laughs> Nine? Ten? <laughs> How many apartments can you get behind the bowling thing? Exactly, exactly. And so we've been we've been on this conquest. We're all winter going through snow with the big boots on, looking at properties, trying to figure out, hey, what if 
what if we using this network, you know, we talked about network and what it takes to, to get all the pieces together. What would it look like if we went through the private sector to raise money and start to do some good for this town that went way beyond our own benefits yeah. uh, and was really about doing something? Because I think, <clears throat> as you mentioned, like, what am I really doing as you, as you were working so hard? And I think everybody hits a point. I think what's... What's the end goal here? Yeah. Is it just to keep working in the restaurant? It's just keep yeah. going, going, Well, going. you know, I mean, and, and you do know, it's you lose money for six months of the year and then you make money, you break even for two and then you make money for three. Is that 12? How's my math? You, <laughs> anyway, you lose one money, See, I'm one terrible more. at math. But you are basically filling up the coffers June, July, August, September and then you're, you, you watch it disappear by, you're running on... Fumes by May, and like we, you can't operate in a cycle like that. But also, you now have got this added thing where people need to be paid more, and we've always tried to pay a willing. We've always paid a living wage, but the price of cost of living has gone up more than we can afford because I can't put the prices up. That's a grass-fed burger from Holiday Farm right now. Now, if I sold it at a thirty percent food cost, that'd be twenty-five dollars with the french fries and the mayonnaise and everything he, the perceived value of a burger is still 12 yeah. for most people yeah. people when i put up a sign saying no workforce housing no workforce people thought aha you're going under because you know you're the i don't know i got some email of a crazy person but i'm not gonna even honor that here but they missed the point completely that we we can't even open a restaurant. We're already trying to survive. And people, the, we can't afford them the wages they deserve because we can't put the prices up more. Y you know, I mean, it's a circle. Now I'm rambling again. But it, it's just, the, we're, it's a catch-22 for restaurants. Totally. And I think, I think that's a big part of the reason I was super pumped to get on here and talk about it is just to educate people on that. Because as you decide, all right, you know what? I do need to raise the burger price from 18 to 20 you're, the other side of that is that you're getting this perception of, oh, he's just raising the prices because he's catering to New Yorkers and he's pushing the locals out. Meanwhile, you're yeah. trying to support the locals. <laughs> yeah, I'm buying from the locals. You're buying from the locals, <laughs> you're hiring the locals, and they're trying to live here. And if, yeah. they, can't, if they can't make a certain threshold of money, there's, there's no chance. And so you're totally right. It is a catch-22 of like where, where, does, where can you make up that difference? Because well, we started adding 3% gets to the check that gets shared with the kitchen get all of it and it's an equal share between the dishwasher i mean everybody uh, everybody doesn't matter your position you get an equal share in the kitchen of and in the summer that night whoever's working that's awesome yeah so on on a saturday night that generally four fifty five dollars an hour extra yeah for everybody now what people don't understand is why don't you just put up the prices well, those are the rich people saying, put up the prices. Right. Well, then the waiters make more money. Right. And so I'm paying the kitchen more because I put up the prices, but the waiters are waking, making more money. So that disparity and that like tension between the front and the back of the house is still like, well, why are they making $250 a night? Right. And I'm making $150. And I got I'm the four, one who's working my ass off. I got here four hours before they did. Yeah. Yeah. And I prepped. Yeah. And then I got to clean the kitchen. Yep. You guys can't even wipe out the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or put the pizza Trust me. I, 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 people <laughs> talk to me about this. I get it from all sides. 
Yeah, I think I think that's what that's what we've been talking about is just where and how can we change the understanding from the consumer side? Because without the consumers, we are nothing. We're in the service industry. This is what we enjoy doing. Yeah. But trying to find a better system that's going to allow for these people to to just bloom and 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 enjoy and be treated and and appreciated for the hard work that it is. There's no question about it. Like working in restaurants has always been challenging, but at this point in the world, I think it's not looked at as a as a laborer job like you carrying up sheetrock, you know, back and forth. It's it's artistry, it's creative, it's professionalism, it's so many things. Um, but without those wages, restaurants are, are not going to well, be people around. ask me where where did where did all the people you used to have so many stuff you you know now the other night we closed down the outside even though it was like 65 degrees and nice because somebody was sick and didn't come in so we didn't have enough people mm-hmm. so we were like okay well let's consolidate it's nice but we see people outside we're going to be stretching and then by seven they're going to be saying it's too cold we're going to want to come in so we made a decision let's keep everybody inside in these two sections People got mad. Yeah. And it, someone said to me, well, why can't you get staff? And I said, one thing COVID taught us is that people don't like to be yelled at anymore. And people are rude. Mm-hmm. And 18-year-old kids don't want to get yelled at. And yeah. grown-ups don't want to get yelled at because your burger's overcooked, undercooked, had bacon, didn't have bacon. Like, people get meaner and meaner and meaner. And... We, we, everyone's just trying to work and they get to a point where like, you know what? I'm going to take that $15 an hour job at the, at the pot shop yeah. and maybe they'll give me a little pot on the side. Or at least 20% off. Or they, is that what happens? They get a discount? I don't know. I, I think have... I thought it was like a residual, like a high, just oh. working in the store. You're like, oh, I feel, I feel great in here. It's like, you ever go oh, to it's those... $15 an hour? Sign me up. Is <laughs> <laughs> it like people... You know, they didn't have to work in the restaurant. All my professional women with children who worked for us for years, who I love them all, every one of them said, I'm not coming back. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to open a store. I'm going to, you know, whatever. Because it's not worth it. Right. It's not worth the stress. Well, People need to be nicer. It's a, it's a challenging thing. I know I feel it all the time. I have a little bit more perspective than your average customer. But... I, it happens to me. It's, it's natural. You go in somewhere, something goes wrong. You wait a while. You're standing in line to order a sandwich or a coffee or you're watching. And, you're, and you get frustrated. Yeah. I get it. But yeah, then, but we're grown-ups. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so everybody else needs to like have, just have that awareness that nobody's trying to screw you. Yeah. Like, nobody's intentionally, at least rarely. Yeah. You know, the, the couple yeah, of times you, I yeah. found tongs in a bathroom at, you know, at certain places, that was clearly intentional. Tongs. Never found tongs in a toilet. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but but like take take one moment. I like to say to my kids all the time because my kids have grown up in restaurants and restaurant kids have a lot of opinions about so yeah. many things. And so like, oh well, this was wrong and this and this. Like, look, take a deep breath and know that everyone's doing their best. And right now, you can't win because. You're going to get upset if they don't seat outside. And guess what? You would have been even more upset had we sat outside. And waited. And you didn't have any water. Minutes. You didn't have any water. Because you know what? The girls were running back and forth, back and forth. The guys. Uh, so you got to cut your loss at some point and realize that 
People are making decisions and they're educated decisions, not just on the fly. You didn't t- flip a coin and be like, outside or inside night, let's figure yeah. it out. Well, let's be assholes. Yeah. Let's say no. I want to say yes. Always. But sometimes for the good of the group and, and for that, that, that restaurant's like a runaway train. If you derail that in the, on a Saturday night because 17 people didn't want bacon, wanted this, this person wanted fish, bacon with their fish, it, you cheat half cheese, no cheese, cut it in half, fry it. You can't do that. Can't do it. You you can't change the whole menu for the hundred and ninety-two people that are eating tonight. And we try and say it as politely as we can. And I put it on the menu, look, please, we we just can't do this. It's too busy. It's not you know, it's not that kind of restaurant. It's like a machine and we're serving two hundred people. Yeah. And obviously way more than that on a you know, summer night. And I feel like we had reached a point before COVID where the people who didn't like that had stopped coming and everybody else who liked it was like, oh, I only waited 15 minutes for my food. It was great. Everything was smooth. I was in and out in an hour and a half. And you know what? I wasn't ready to leave. So I had a drink in the garden Mm -hmm. and they were happy. And then COVID happened and people got stuck at home and maybe lost relatives. Who knows? I mean, a million people died. Yeah. And everybody reevaluated their lives. And in the beginning, people appreciated restaurants. Mm-hmm. And I feel like now we've kind of, the pendulum has swung the other way. And people are, are mad and more mad than they need to be. Yeah. And it, it's, it's kind of sad. It's like just like appreciate that we're not all dead and yeah. that we actually survived. And the government did an amazing job and the vaccinations came through. Now, when I said that we needed vaccination cards to get in the restaurant, I didn't do that because I'm vaccinated. I did that because 90% of the people that work for us had a relative or somebody who was susceptible to COVID that, you know, it wouldn't end well. Yeah. So we said, this is, if we're going to have a staff, we need to go with the majority. And the majority said, let's ask for vaccination cards. And the emails I got, Mm. they're just crazy people. Selfish. I mean, it's so selfish. It's just like... I don't, you know what? Hey, I love you. You know, you didn't want to get vaccinated because of your reasons. Yeah. I still love you. Totally valid. You just can't come to the restaurant. Yeah. And you need to accept that because you made a decision and then I've made a decision. Yeah. But people just can't do that. And I, I'm going on a bit of a rant. No, 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 it's good. But it's the internet that has created this divisiveness. Now we're all like dogs with the screen door, right? We're all barking at each other and the shit people write online. And then you meet them in person and they're like, awkward. (laughs) Did I say that? There's definitely a gap between uh, the persona, the the person that comes and talks to you right in front of you and tells you how it is. Uh, And it seems like uh, once they, once they have that, uh, that ability to just type things into into their phone or into their computer. Yeah, uh, it's taken away any human contact. It so completely changes. Y- you've been dehumanized, and you're fair game. And you're that's in the, a way that you wouldn't talk ever. You would never talk to people like yeah. that. I mean, we just like not like we are civilized people. Exactly. And the internet has taken away the civility. The death of civility is the internet. But yeah, I mean, I, that some of the stuff, the emails are just. You can't please. How dare you? Hey, just I'm sorry, don't come. And when we reopen, you'll be welcome back. It's that simple, right? 
you, you can't yeah. please everybody and you do have to pick a lane and stick yeah. to it. Yeah. And you know what? That That is the personality of the business. And I know it's not just you. I know that you're taking... My uh, 40 employees, exactly, right? Exactly. That's which, my... Which they're not seeing. They're, they're seeing it as you. Yeah. Mark. Mark. But it's not Mark. It's it's Mark acting on behalf of so many different people. Yeah. And, and the truth is that we need to understand that restaurants, front of house and back of house, like what, what a great terminology but the truth is like we are all at some level back of house like we're all hidden back there right and you only ever see the front of house as a customer oh yeah and people need to know there 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 are so many other decisions and factors which can't be talked about and and i hope that this this platform is some way to educate people and get a little bit of a look you know like like reading like reading uh, Kitchen Confidential for the first time, yes, where you're just exactly. like blown away. You have no idea. Yeah. Well, you know, Anthony Bourdain said that the most insightful thing about Yelp, because I have a big problem with Yelp. Me too. We have a terrible Yelp rating. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't care, but it's, it's an ego. I mean, it's just like you're being insulted by people. No, it's because so, you, you care. And you work your... But So Anthony Bourdain said, you spend your life savings on a restaurant, you you spend a year designing and building it. Opening night, you feed three hundred people, and somebody says on Yelp, "Meh," or I'm I'm you know I'm paraphrasing, but <laughs> it's so true. He, he's like, "Yeah, it wasn't that great." Like you would just like you. The internet has given this person, who you know, probably knows very little about food, um, and and the. It's in the public forum. Like you, yeah. anyone can read that. And he said, like, Yelp is sucks. Yelp is the rudest, stupidest, worst thing to ever happen to the internet. And I'm just going to add to that. Yes, please. Two weeks ago, we had a table and we messed up. We undercooked their chicken. Kate, the manager, went over, said, Look, I'm really, really sorry. We can make you a fresh one. Um, our mistake. Can we buy you a round of drinks? They said, we don't want a chicken. Take it off the check. Of course we'll take it off the check. You'll never pay for anything in my restaurant that you didn't like. And, and especially if we messed it up, you know. Take it off the check. They order top shelf tequilas, all four of them. And they leave a 20% tip. And so the chicken was $28. We took it off the check. I looked at it. And now, you know, I'm not going to... What about it? It, it was pink, but perfectly fine. I would have, I would eat the crap out of that piece of chicken. <laughs> and so would my dog would have eaten the rest when I got home. But the bill for the tequilas was $62 for tequila top shelf, right? They left a nice tip. They went home and wrote the shittiest one-star review. Oh, no. How the service was terrible and how we messed their food up. Now, you basically neutering the the host there you like we we did everything we should do we offered you to, to replace it mm -hmm. we took it off the check when you didn't want it and we bought you a round of drinks 60 dollars hour cost you know yep. and then you left a nice tip for the waiter mm -hmm. and went home and wrote a crappy review mm -hmm. how we suck and you'll never go there again and it was the worst service you ever had now i don't 
understand. Like, so then you should have paid for your stupid chicken and eaten it like a grown up because mm-hmm. there was nothing wrong with it, right? <laughs> yeah. you, might have, you might have enjoyed your meal. <laughs> yes. And I, I mean, I, now I'm like, you're ruining it for everybody else. Because yeah. now you're like, okay, what do they, what do they want? How, yeah. much, how much do you think uh, you, people actually read Yelp before they go hmm. out of it? restaurant like i, I don't i oh, yeah. obviously i don't i mean that's debatable if you have any brain in your no. head you know you like like it way way before the internet and yelp and i'm showing my age obviously there was a survey and you they said that if you had a nice meal a great meal you loved a restaurant you told three people and if you had a really bad experience at a restaurant you told 17 people mm-hmm. and the, the, you know, the takeaway was human nature is you have something good. You want to keep it to yourself. You don't want yeah. everybody going to your favorite restaurant and clogging up the, 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 uh, the seats, but people love to gossip and people love to bad mouth. So excuse me. Let, let me tell yeah. you, I, I did some research into this because we're, we're talking about Yelp and reviews and that, Reviews as a concept are actually very helpful. In fact, I looked up oh, the yeah. definition of a review, and it's a critique to make something better. Yeah, that's what a if review you, is. If you read it and you establish a theme, like, oh yeah, if someone's being called out by name four times, then they're obviously not doing a great job, and they're not they're yes. doing your business a disservice. Absolutely, and I do look for themes. I don't see many themes. Right, because because we can't see everything. And the truth is, 99% of your goods, whatever they are, whether you're a masseuse, a chef, or this, that, are consumed by your customers. So what better pool? But in, in, our, in our research that we've been doing about this, we found that people are, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm bullshitting on the numbers here, but it was 10 times more inclined to listen to a review for a restaurant than they are for a doctor who's going to do a surgery for them. Come on. Like, like people make decisions based off of their restaurants due to what's posted online, but don't even consider looking up, should I go with surgeon A or surgeon B? Yeah. Surgeon A chops the wrong arm off. (laughs) Surgeon A likes drink vodka in the morning. He's sitting in his van right now. But but it's it's a shame and... And you think back to the comment card before the internet, because you said yeah. the internet ruined everything. Yeah. But for, for sure, that, that feeling of a comment card and being able to, to give your critique but give it directly to them is such, a, such an old thing now that just isn't around anymore. Now it's numbers. It's 1 through 10. How did we do? And it's going ahead and publicly ramming just a restaurant online or any business for that matter. And don't you love, I mean, in the old days, reading the New York Times, when a restaurant that was, you know, would get a takedown and you would read it and it would, as a restaurant owner, you'd be cringing, but at the same time you're like, yeah, I went there and it wasn't that great. And <laughs> someone really is calling them on their shit. And there's some, some kind of weird pleasure in there and guilt that you're actually feeling pleasure. <laughs> Schadenfreude. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> But if you're on the receiving end, it's so flips like, but. <laughs> oh, I, I, there are nights, Look, Yelp certainly has gotten this two-sidedness. It's, it, it is truth written on the internet, even though it isn't, but people right. believe it's truth. But I think people are starting to come around and realize don't, don't, don't listen to everything you read on Yelp. 
And there's a way, I, I use Yelp from time to time as a way to comb through because I can read between the bullshit yeah, yeah, yeah. and look at a couple pictures. And even though it's a terrible picture, I can get a sense of like what's going on in the background, what's yeah. going on here. Read the positive reviews, see what people have to, have to say. Um, but as that happens, I think it's important for people to realize the what we really want is things that can make it better. Don't 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 just constructive don't just, criticism is great. Don't, you know, my uh, old chef from Diner opened a little sandwich shop, which was amazing, called Salty. Now, Diner, I, I, every night there was a salty complaint. And now I feel like a very well, maybe less so, but still it's a reoccurring theme. Mm -hmm. And it's not because the food is too, too salty. Generally, I think it's because people's palates, if you cook at home and you don't use any salt, yeah. like I'll eat a dish and say, hmm, that's really good. But someone's going to say it's a bit salty. But for mm -hmm. me, it was perfect. Right. And I say that was perfect. But maybe back it up a notch just because we, you know, we're feeding the general public and we're not, we're not feeding me. Yeah. You know, as I did the same smoker. thing today with the bartenders. <laughs> we were tasting all the new cocktails for the menu this week at Cantina. I'm like, this is amazing. I would drink four of these. I think it needs a touch more agave. It yeah. just, not a little for me. more sweet. Not for me, but it's too tart. Exactly. Yeah. It just needs a little bit more. Yeah. No problem. No problem. You make yeah. that adjustment. You know what? If if we get five people that come to us in the first week being like, hey, just let you know that drink was a little sweet. Well, I was wrong. Yeah, Take yeah. it back. Yeah, no yeah. problem. But nothing's worse than then going home after a long night's work, getting into bed, opening up your phone, checking your emails one last time for the hundredth time of the day, oh, and seeing God. one new Yelp review, and it says, Drinks are so sweet, it's disgusting. Never yeah. go here. I feel like I'm in Texas. Where's that place in in Florida where they all go for spring break? Oh, uh, Miami, Myrtle Beach. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> like, the with the sugar, sugary cocktails. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a it's a thing, and and I hope. Well, one thing I thought, just because we're talking about salt levels here, is maybe next week we should bring a steak in, and. And a I'm steak? A steak, yeah, or a piece of meat or something. Oh, hang on, I get invited back? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but but we, should, we should season it, or maybe the next time we bring, like, a chef on. Yeah. Because I don't want to consider myself a chef anymore, even though I could totally salt a steak. Um, but we should bring it on because when you see a chef salt that piece of meat... You'd be like, holy crap, stop. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Are you out of your minds? <laughs> you know? Wait, I'll salt mine, and then every mouthful, I'll add more salt. Yeah. Instead of no, just doing it the first time. My, my dad goes ahead, you know, <laughs> to, to put a steak on the grill and, and does a little, like, pinch. I'm like, come on, dude. <laughs> you gotta start cranking that thing. <laughs> put a drill on the back of that salt grinder. <laughs> Big time. Big yeah. time. Please uh, try again. Please try again. But that's, With uh, that salt. Try again with that salt. So yeah, let's let, let's salt something next week. Even I'm now. very intrigued by this tequila hat, by the way. I'm so glad you mentioned the tequila hat because because that's that's talk about reoccurring themes. Billy stopped by last week after service. We're in the middle of this whole thing. What a relief for him to come in and take the microphone for a couple minutes. Yeah, uh, and he was like, "Can I ask a question?" I'm like, "Sure, Billy, whatever." He's like, "What's going on with this uh, bottle of reposado?" So I think. This was a birthday gift. I had a birthday a couple weeks ago, and uh, yeah. Shimmy actually gave me that. Oh, nice. Hey, Shimmy. Hey, Shimmy. Good and, job. Uh, it's a bottle of Reposado tequila. And in in a to, hat. Yeah. And I think you wear the hat after you've drunk the tequila, I'm assuming. But we're, we're going to let it sit here, and, and all the people that mention it, we're going to invite to drink it one night. That's oh, that would be nice. All right. So hopefully, I think hide it behind a 
something so that there's actually some tequila for us to drink <laughs> because I'm going to guarantee you that every person who sits at this table is going to be like, what's with the tequila hat, pal? Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a party. <laughs> as long as we make industry party next year, uh, you know, on a Tuesday, on a Tuesday Wednesday, Wednesday. I got Tuesday, you. Yes. I got you. Mark showed up. But I up. did learn how to make pizza and I, I, I really enjoyed that. So. so we had the industry party last night at Cantina. Uh, just, I just want to quickly note it really because in episode one, I said we wanted to give shout outs every single week and, as we mentioned this industry party, I want to give a shout out to to Daniel, who who is the proprietor yeah. from the Dreamway Lodge, which was the amazing business that hosted the industry hoedown every year. Yeah. And this would have been the tenth year anniversary. And he's he's in the process of moving on to the next thing, as we should empower everybody when they're at that time to do. And we decided at Cantina we wanted to take on this tradition and throw something because it was such a good time and I've been having so much fun. I mean, it's a great idea. You know, enjoying people and we all work hard enough that we never get to get together. And uh, so we we had him and Amy Loveless, who was his chef, as the guests of honors last night to throw the first of the new Passing of the Torch industry party. So quick shout out to to Daniel Osman and and, uh, Amy Loveless for, for having carried that torch for so long and being generous enough to pass it on give us yeah give us the ability and i would have i think i only went once because it's a bit of a drive oh yeah at nine o'clock on a monday night yeah (laughs) after service to get all the way out there but but i could tell who who was work uh, i was i'm running around i got my my party outfit on throwing hoes be like hey how you doing how you doing and then sure enough i i hear somebody whisper in my ears i'm partying my ass off being like some of us had to work tonight and I turned around it was Mark <laughs> but you could see there were a couple people that trickled in there late being like ah we tried to make it we tried yeah. to make it been there no totally I mean and, we, and we, we actually closed early but most people were like yeah 20 minutes in the wrong direction I think we have on a Tuesday night we'll be there we'll help you prep alright we'll we'll just we'll ride our bikes I mean we all we're, we're a big bike riding crew at the Prairie Whale sweet we'll ride up there and, and just help and that Tacos El Pastor. I'm so upset I missed that. It was so awesome. Yeah. That, I Did mean, you take pictures? I, I, I didn't take any pictures. But I'm going to take a picture and then send it to Marco Pierre White. <laughs> and like, that's food, mate. And here's your $50 back. $50 is not worth bloody anything anymore. Yeah. Well, Mark, man. Yeah, good times. Thank Thanks you. for having Thank me. Thank you for coming down. I know you yeah. got to go get some schoolwork done with your daughter. Yeah, poor thing. What time is it? I got to go write the, wine, the wine menu because we're opening this week. Uh, and we'll we'll definitely have you back at some point. Cool. Because we're getting yeah. into some deeper yeah. stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the housing thing, I'd love to... I'd love to talk. Well, we're going to talk about it more yeah, anyway and see what more. we can do. But yeah, I was interested. Uh, we could, uh, I mean, we could talk for hours about that and we really right. could. So maybe that's a whole other subject and we get somebody else in here too that. Um, I, I would, I'd like to get Pedro back on. Yeah. Pedro on at some yeah, point yeah. and we'll have you in for that one so we can kind of Great. unveil some I, 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 I'll sit in the background. Honestly, I won't tell stories about random weird <laughs> no, shit. trust me. Like after doing yeah. last week to this week, like listening to talk <laughs> is amazing. And after you see video of yourself, you're going to be like, yeah, let's invite somebody else and get me back in here. I'll bring two <laughs> bottles of wine next time. <laughs> um, but that would be nice because there's, there's definitely more to be said there. And Mark and I have been doing a lot of work to try and figure out what can be done. Um, 
hitting a lot of walls as we go and a lot of bumps, but we're, we're definitely together, very committed to, to making an impact both for our businesses and, and for our community at large. I mean, for me, you know, like I, I don't know how many days I have, how many years I have left running a restaurant, but what really excites me is, excites me is I'd like to be able to do more out of the restaurant business, but for the people who are in the restaurant business and the people who are in the workforce doing other jobs, you know, with housing and stuff like that, because that kind of sort of piques my interest way more than listening to salty chicken complaints. Yeah. And you've, you've, you've gotten, you have a wealth of knowledge and, and understanding of what's happened both in New York and now that I know all over fucking Europe and Africa, <laughs> uh, and certainly being here and, and, I can hear things that you're saying to me that oftentimes I wish somebody had told me earlier on. And so I think if we can go ahead and start to solve some of those problems, knowing what we know now and helping the younger generation and, and this community that we love so much, we'll, we'll be leaving it in good hands for sure. Cool. Thanks, Thanks for man. having me. Appreciate Martha. it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Josh. you.